If you've been with us at Christchurch Earlsfield over the last few months, you will have felt the proverbial stick of God's word, giving us a good beating as we've looked through the early chapters of Revelation, chapters 1 to 3, and then also at the end of chapter 20, verse 11 to 15, which we looked at just a few weeks ago. It has been challenging. I've heard that from you. But I guess many of us have been stirred by God's spirit and God's word to change, to take steps in our lives, to be the one who overcomes rather than the one who succumbs to the temptations we see around us in this world and our sinful natures. Some people enjoy the motivation of a stick, don't they? Uh, The fear of what might be if we ignore God. Uh, Thomas Chalmers, who said in a very now famous sermon, uh, he was just looking at one verse, 1 John 2 verse 15, which says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. Uh, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Chalmers began this very famous sermon with a statement, and it said this, A moralist will be unsuccessful in trying to, to, to displace his love of the world by reviewing the ills of the world. Misplaced affections need to be replaced by the far greater power of the affection of the gospel. Now, what he did is he unpacked that statement uh, in a very famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Basically, he was saying, you can beat yourself all you like with a stick of moralism, trying to get rid of all that sin in your life, but it will be momentary. Because ironically, in part, you will always regret the loss of that sinful pattern or behavior in your life even though you know that that sin is so destructive. Take, for example, people, you know, I guess many of us will be struggling maybe with lustful thoughts or whatever it may be from uh, inappropriate relationships or uh, TV, films, internet, all that kind of stuff. We, we, many of us will struggle with that. And the subsequent actions that follow are destructive and they take us from God. But we continue in, in them, don't we, sometimes? Because in the short term, they can be very exciting Chalmers, what he does, he shows in his sermon that to expel them from our lives to a significant degree, not to to get to a perfect state, that's for the new creation. He says it cannot be done by just saying, I need to stop through pure discipline, through a moral beating, if you like, or as he describes it, as reviewing them. He says, you know, you, you can try and look elsewhere, you can try and suppress But they'll always come back if that's just the only steps you take. Those are all good and practical things to do, he says, when trying to stop a sinful pattern or behaviour. But what Chalmers argues from the Bible is that you need a more powerful affection in your life to expel the affection you have for that sinful behaviour. So, for example, if you do struggle with perhaps lust or whatever, then you need to replace that affection you have with a more powerful affection, namely the far greater power of the affection of the gospel, Chalmers states. In other words, we do need to hear the stick of warning, if you like, from God's word. And we need to take practical steps to avoid sinful patterns in our lives. But the stick will have that just momentary effect, unless we have, if you like, the carrot of a more powerful affection replacing that sinful affection that we're trying to expel. 
Simply, I guess we've had a lot of stick, haven't we, over the last few months. And now it's time for some carrot. Revelation 21 and 22. Though there is stick, there is warning in these passages um, that are equally frightening to any of the, anything else we've seen in, in Revelation. Um, what I'm going to do, because of the imbalance that we've had over the last few months... Um, that we've received from God's word. Please excuse me if I deal with those warnings, with those sticks, if you like, more lightly than I would have done before. Uh, my main aim tonight is to provide, if you like, a biblical carrot. A, you know, to draw our eyes forwards. A picture of what is to come. Tonight, I suppose my prayer is that, that we will be drawn to love Jesus so much more because of what we hear in his word. I pray that your affections, your heart, your mind, your will will be burning for God by the end of what we hear tonight. I know it's not very British, but we are first and foremost citizens of heaven rather than citizens of Britain. Now, if you're here today as someone just investigating the Christian faith, you might just have some questions. You may actually be very sceptical. I'm thrilled you're here because what you're getting tonight is... I suppose it's the icing on the cake of the Christian faith. This is, the, this is what we live for and what we will die for if we are called to do so. And it's good for you to see that. Are we crazy? I mean, that Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians 15 said this, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied. Christians are to be pitied more than all men. Oh, we have this hope as Christians because... We have hope not in ourselves, but in Christ. It is only in him, him who defeated death and rose again to give new life, uh, that we can have the hope that we have. So what we see in Revelation 21 and 22, this apocalyptic vision given by God to John, is an impression of the reality of the eternity to come for those whose lives have been bought by Jesus Christ, death on the cross and sealed in his resurrection. My last talk here, just a few weeks ago now, was um, what Christians are saved from. It was harrowing in Revelation 20. And what we are looking at today is what Christians are saved for. We are not to be pitied. Rather, we are to be envied among all men. Because look what we've been saved from. Sorry, saved for. Firstly, first point, we've been saved to be in the presence of God. To be in the presence of God. Now, we, should, we could just stop there because that fact in and of itself should utterly astound you. That, that we, people so frequently, who turn our backs on God, who deny his lordship, that we are allowed, because of Christ's death on the cross, to be actually invited into the very presence of God to his utter perfection and utter glory, should make your jaws drop. If you haven't read this little book from uh, Revive, our little weekend away in the summer, um, called Holiness, chapter one in here, written by Matt Fuller, and the talk that you can also download on on the website, um, is a really helpful summary of the glory and majesty of God. Uh, And it should be, and we should be rightfully in awe of his glory. His utter perfection is amazing. But here what we see in Revelation 21, we're pointed forward to the time 
when we stand in that presence of God, of which we should rightly fear now, we're pointed forward to it, where we see that we can stand without fear, and with great joy, and with ultimate security. These are verses, I guess, that we've just heard read that mean so much, don't they, to so many people. Many people who are hurting, who are feeling loss, who are feeling loneliness right now, who are fearing for their lives around the world. These verses, rightly so, mean so much. They are a great comfort. And if, if you're a Christian, I guess if you're an underliner in your Bibles or you stick little things in, this is a great selection of verses to underline, to memorize and cling to in the dark times of your lives. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, then please listen carefully because the eternity you hear of now in these verses of the new creation is what you are foregoing for the sake of a few decades you have on this earth as king of your own life. See, if you think that this is all there is, that the present, the now, is, is that's it, then you place your own wisdom above that of the wisdom of God as revealed in his word, the Bible. And to my mind, that must make you supremely confident of your future eternity. And if you're not supremely confident, why don't you listen in? Why don't you hear God's wisdom? Because he longs for you to know the pleasure of his new creation. Look what you miss out on. Turn to verse 1 if you can. Follow it with me. Then I saw a new heaven and new earth. What John is doing is... He's turning, if you like, from the end of chapter 20, from seeing the predicament of those without Christ. And he continues, um, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away and there's no longer any sea. I guess what we see here is that there's something new happening. Uh, he's not describing a new edition of what we know already, but rather a complete transformation of all things. Even heaven will be no longer. There is a new heaven, new earth. But we will just uh, recognise this new heaven and new earth. For like um, our bodies, there will be a renewal of everything. As you see in verse 5. We will see the likeness from the old. But it will be transformed. And now perfect. Look what is to come. Follow me. Verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Prepared as a bride. Beautifully dressed for her husband. Now, of course, the language is apocalyptic, so therefore it's symbolic, but no less true. Um, what do we have to look forward to, though? Well, it's a holy city, the new Jerusalem we see in verse 2. Now, Jerusalem is, uh, of course, key to so many events uh, throughout biblical history. Not least where it's where Christ died on the cross and where our entry to this new creation was won. And its significance here is no less meaningful. Uh, The fact that the new Jerusalem ascends prepared as a bride shows us that what we have awaiting us in this new creation is is beautiful. and It is for us and it is also made ready with perfect, loving devotion. But what awaits us? What does this new Jerusalem offer? Well, it brings us into the very presence of God himself. 
God will descend from the new heaven in the new Jerusalem. And we see from John's uh, vision here, he will declare, look at verse 3, these very well-known verses. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Of course, God's presence throughout um, history and the was first known in the garden, then the tabernacle, and the temple, and then from Pentecost by his spirit in our hearts. But that is just a mere foretaste of what we are to look forward to. Well, God, you see, in this new creation will live with us forever. He will be with his people. Not simply as a bystander, but he will be our personal, intimate God. With a bond of intimacy that we just cannot begin to fathom at this moment. God will be perfectly present in all his glory. And we will not be in any way in harm, but rather in God's presence. Look at his protective power, verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. In God dwelling amongst his people, he can be that perfect comforter, that perfect counsellor. His concern for each of us will be uh, utterly infinite. Death is gone, there will be no more crying or, or mourning or pain. And we're all dying, we all know that. We all face decay, it's why we spend so many millions of pounds in this country going to the gym or buying new products for hair, ish, and face ish. You know what I mean. Even the the great Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, one of my great heroes, um, as many of you will know. Uh, You know, this man who's iPod, all those i things, um, you know, is worth seven billion apparently. He can't avoid the sting of the inevitable, can he? I don't know if you've seen the recent pictures. He's retired now, hasn't he, from the board of Apple. And um, he is looking very frail, isn't he, as he battles pancreatic cancer. But reality is dawning. Do you hear what he said recently? It was in the news. No one wants to die, and yet death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. He's right, isn't he? But he's also wrong. Death is what all of us face. We will all die, but one escaped its hold. And many have followed in his footsteps. But look at this new creation. Look what a being in the presence of God means. You see, death and all that comes before it, that progressive decline of pain and suffering and tears, all this, all of that will be gone. It should be the most glorious hope that we, that we know. There can be nothing that can outdo this, can there, in our lives. The wonder of eternal life before us with no crying, no mourning, no pain, both physical and emotional, No more loneliness, no more aches and pains, but rather God fully present in his glory. One of the greatest torments of man in modern history was the Russian counterattack of the Germans in Stalingrad in World War II. The Russians were very prepared for the cold. They obviously lived there and they were very used to it. And they sat in, in Stalingrad, they dug themselves in, and they sat through the cold winter, underarmed, how they had any um, artillery and machine guns left. 
and outnumbered by about one to four, with the Germans surrounding them and bombing them continually. But the, but the Germans, despite all the manpower and artillery over the winter months, literally uh, froze to death in their boots. Do you know what the last request of the Germans, uh, the soldiers outside Stalingrad, was in the last known wireless, sorry, uh, wireless message sent from outside Stalingrad? What did it say? It simply said this. Send us Bibles. Stop. In diaries recovered, we can see how many soldiers, despite Hitler's suppression of the Christian church in Europe, they consoled themselves in their faith. And in their pain and in their tears, they reminded themselves again and again of the hope of the new creation where God, in his presence, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is what Christians have been saved for. To be in the very presence of God. Secondly, we've been saved uh, to know the provision of God. Why don't you follow me from verse 5 onwards there. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for the words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Now in Revelation, God is very rarely kind of noted to speak um, himself. Often it's an angel who speaks on his behalf. And uh, here... We've got the very voice of God. That's amazing, isn't it? I don't know if you ever listened to an actor or a singer. X Factor's back on, isn't it? Which is a bad thing. But there we go. I don't know if you ever see an actor or a singer. And you kind of... You know, I love a voice like that. Do you ever do that? Have you ever watched 24? How many blokes here would like to have Keith Sutherland's voice that says, Previously on 24? Or something like that. I mean, how masculine is that voice? It's amazing. His father, Donald Sutherland, actually has got a better voice, but we won't go there at all. But to hear the voice of God himself, just imagine it. You can't. But it will be amazing. And look what he says. I am making everything new. See, those who hear these words and believe will experience that transformation of being made new. And that transformation begins The moment that the Spirit of God enters our hearts when we become a Christian. But ultimately will be so on the day that we hear that voice. That big commanding voice of God in his very presence. That's when Christians will be made new completely. God speaks again says, it is done. You see that? There's something of an end point in the Bible here. Why? Because that's when time ends and when eternity begins. His words now reassure, look at it. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last letters of the Greek Greek alphabet, are used there to show that God is the beginning and the end. He is the, the creator and the completer of all things. But we also see here, see here in his words that he is the provider. You see that? I will give the water of life. 
The only comparison I can think, an illustration, it's a very weak illustration here, is the day that I drank my first can of Red Bull a number of years ago. Um, I'm not a caffeine drinker at all. I don't drink coffee or tea or anything. And someone said, oh yeah, I, I was a bit tired. I said, why don't you drink a Red Bull? That'd be fine. So having no caffeine to a Red Bull was quite a large jump, apparently. I was awake for about 30 hours. And um, <laughs> in, in the middle of the night, I went for a run for about three hours uh, to try and tire myself out. It was, pretty, it was a terrible time. But it was, water in the Bible always gives life whether that was in Eden, in the, in the convergence of the four, river, four rivers, whether that was in the Exodus, in the provision of water in the desert, well, the whole way through the Bible, water is life-giving. And here we see the water of salvation. It will bring eternal life. Why? Because it is given by the giver of life, the great provider. And note, it is freely given. It is an act of grace, symbolic of the fact that all of us, without exception, cannot gain any of what we're seeing here on our own merits. We can only enter, we can only gain this new creation, be part of it because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. By dying in our place for our sin, by taking the judgment that we deserve and his perfect life being counted to us. So all we need to say here is take the water and drink. Because then you'll be one, the one whom verse 7 speaks of. The one who overcomes. The one who inherits. The one who is God's. The one who is God's son. The Christian life should never be sold as an easy ride. Christians suffer the world over. And that is why he who overcomes is appropriate. Because it's the reality for so many. Islamic secular countries around the world, Christians are being jailed and slaughtered. You know this, I don't need to tell you. Recently a convert from Islam named Sheikh Hamid Adem was severely beaten and hung on a cross. While beating him, the crowd told him, Jesus was hung on a cross and beaten. And as his follower, you also deserve the same punishment. Do pray for people around the world, Christians, brothers and sisters, as they overcome. Getting through the Christian life in this world, that is to overcome. We may not face the death and the beatings that our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world do, but we may face some mockery. We may lose a couple of friends as we try and share the gospel with them. It is not easy sometimes. But get your eyes on this new creation where there is no more pain, no more mockery, but rather being with God in his full presence, with us being provided for in this water, this life-giving eternal water. Is it worth the hassle and strife now? I hope you're saying right now, absolutely it is. In fact, it is amazing, isn't it? Even to live life now with this hope in our hearts. What joy. Of course, there is an alternative, and I'd like you to read it. Look at verse 8 if you can. Just read verse 8 to yourself.
So the presence and the provision of God, that is what Christians have been saved for. Thirdly now, the glory of God. I'm not going to spend too much on this. I'd rather want to read some of the passage to you and let it speak for itself. Follow with me from verse 9. One of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. And its brilliance was, was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Please read this when you get home. Carry it on. Just read to the end. I think it will blow your mind. Go on to verse 22, if you follow with me. I did not see a, a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb, that's Jesus, are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. I, uh, on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honour of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Are you in that book? I hope so. I'm not going to have much to say this. I haven't got much time. But I don't need to say that much. It just is so loud, isn't it? It's amazing. See, if you trust in Jesus' death on the cross for your sin, you will one day be there. It's amazing. You'll be able to, to see, because why? The dazzling glory of God will light the city of God. His magnificence will, will, will beam out for all to see. His glory will be clear. Because everything around you will be total purity. That is what Christians have been saved for. For the glory of God. Fourthly, the eternity of God. We're now into chapter 22. I'd like to turn back. I just want to have a look again because of time. Look at verse 5. We know much of this already is true because of the glory and we've seen there. But just to see the longevity is really helpful here. Verse 5, there will be no more nights, there will be no need for light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord will God will give them light. Speaking much of the glory again, but here we go. And they will reign forever and ever. Now this little section, verses 1 to 6 of chapter 22, point us back to, um, the imagery goes back to kind of Eden-like language. Um, right in those first few chapters of the Bible, and what we are seeing here is Eden is being restored. What God creates and then what man destroys through his sin um, is redeemed. It is brought back to its original and eternal state. The curse that was, that was given in Eden because uh, of man's sin is lifted there in verse 3. There is no more darkness. There is no more shame. Just eternal freedom and joy in the light and the glory of God. Do you believe it? Well, listen to the angel in verse 6. These words are trustworthy and true. They come from God himself. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Are you ready? 
What shall we do then with this in mind? All good writing, all good speeches, all good oratory, all good comedy, in fact, um, draws things together at the end, doesn't it? To make the kind of main points clear. And God does this now, doesn't he? As, as John finishes this letter, giving us three big statements to finish. And I'm going to summarise them as they're on your outline as well. Firstly, he calls us to respond today in worship. Look at verse 9. Worship God. I think what we see here is this is our purpose. It's been the purpose of the whole Bible, the whole way through. We're called to worship God. And that will be our purpose in the new heavens and the new earth. So get yourself ready. Secondly, remember Jesus is coming soon. We see that in verse 12. I am coming soon, he says. I suppose we might see that is our motivation. A motivation for our whole lives. As we wait for the new heavens and the new earth, we ought to be waking every morning without those words on our lips. Is it today? Because Jesus says he's coming soon. And thirdly, we need to receive this free gift. He says, come in verse 17, but he also says, receive. There's appeal from Jesus here to respond to him, to come to him and receive this gift of eternal life. The water is a picture there again. This This gift that he's bought with his precious blood on the cross. This is what Christians are saved for. We've been saved to be in the presence of God. To know the provision of God. To see and experience the glory of God. And to live in the eternity of God. So what are we going to do? We need to respond today in worshipping God. Remember Jesus is coming soon. And lastly, to receive that free gift of eternal life. If you do so, I guess you'll want to pray like John does in verse 20. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Why do you want to pray that? Well, I hope your eyes have been opened, your heart has been warmed. Because when he does come, what a day. What a day that's going to be. Let's pray as we close.